Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Melena Rice. I'm Will Saunders. And I'm Alex Galliano. You're listening to episode two, and today we're staying close to home and talking about exciting phenomena happening right in our neighborhood, on astronomical scales anyways. Um, There's a ton of interesting science that's happening right under our noses and just around us, Um, and we don't even have to leave our solar system to find a huge amount of fascinating science and active fields of research. Will, how about you start us off with our closest astronomical neighbor? Yeah, tell us about the moon. You got it. All right. The thing about the moon that is most important, or at least should be most important to us on Earth, is its size. Because it's very large for a moon compared to the other planets. It's about 30% the size of the Earth, whereas for Jupiter and Saturn, their biggest moons are 3 and 4%. And it's that 30% size moon that stabilizes Earth's tilt at 23.5 degrees, which you, of course, learn about in, say, fifth grade Earth science. And that is what creates the seasons as we know them. So what would happen if we were on a planet that didn't have a large moon? So like Mars just has tiny moons and um, Mercury doesn't actually even have any moons, I think. Right. Well, what happens is you have a tilt that's erratic and it doesn't change on any predictable scale. So it becomes uh, a climate that's too unstable for life to develop. Now, there are many other problems with Mars as a place for complex life to develop. Maybe simple life, but complex life, certainly not. But this just adds one more difficult thing, and it's one more way in which the Earth is pretty lucky and another thing that we needed to have go right to be able to get life. All right, so so then why do we have such a large moon relative to the other planets? The short answer is we don't really know exactly how the moon formed. And it's a, it's a phenomenon like so many. We know that it has to happen, but we don't know what mechanisms would even allow for it to happen. And this gets me to the astrobite I read for this week, which is called a proposed moon formation theory, the multiple impact hypothesis. And this was written by a guest writer named Jacob Azule, who wrote this for an undergraduate class of his at Columbia University as part of the Astrobytes collaboration program. And the paper was written by Robert Citron and others published in 2018. And so the, the title of it, Multiple Impact Hypothesis, seeks to challenge the well-held giant impact theory of how the Earth formed. That is, instead of just one impact creating the moon, one giant impact knocking up Earth material into the moon, it's many, many small impacts. So I know that the giant impact theory has been pretty well accepted in the past. So um, I guess how well accepted is it? And what was the impetus for having an additional theory, do you think? Well, the giant impact hypothesis is pretty well established because um, we know there's evidence that the moon is made of the same material that Earth is made of, the same general types of rocks. And that comes from chemical composition, measuring the amount of each isotope. And it also comes from the way that the moon is tidally locked. It means that the moon had to have formed from debris on Earth that got kicked up into a disk 
And as we talked about with discs, the one thing they do really well is dissipate. And all the material either gets together into one object or it gets lost. And in this case, it formed the moon. But as with all these types of theories, the evidence is not concrete. You're never going to find the, the crater from the Earth because it was so molten and, and young that there's, that's not how it works. And in this um, astrobite, um, they talked about how multiple impacts could each create a small moonlet, that is a proto-moon, a precursor to the moon, that would eventually merge together and could form the moon. And it's, it's definitely gaining steam, uh, but I think there's still a, a, a long way to go before this is a well-held theory on how the moon formed. Out of curiosity, how many moonlets are we talking here? Is it like two of them, or is it like 10 or 15? I, I think recall? it's I think it's many. Um, I don't know if it's one or a thousand, but I think it's closer to the hundreds range. Um, okay. But what, what happens when you form a moonlet is it's very easy for uh, the second moonlet that forms to disturb the first one, and they both get lost. It didn't happen in a lot of cases, but I think it happened in like 30% of the simulations they ran. So it's, it's challenging to, to merge them. And it's when you have more pieces in play, more dynamics, it gets more complicated. And so I think that's the hurdle at this point. But again, this is all based on simulations. It's not going to be a smoking gun, right? It's, it's not that kind of research. So I think there's a lot more evidence that needs to be obtained before we can say that there's good reason to believe one over the other. When um, a giant impact hypothesis, uh, we know that it was at least one and it was a giant impact. Whether or not that was the only impact is up in the air. Right. So I know that NASA has proposed the Artemis mission to put people back on the moon in yeah. 2024, including the first woman. It's very exciting. Absolutely. Um, so do you know, will they be able to shed more light on this question? And what exactly are they looking for to try to distinguish between these theories? Yeah, good question. Um, the The challenging thing about studying the uh, the moon from Earth is that we really need to analyze the chemicals, and we can't do that from Earth, even being as close as we are, and the moon being large in the sky. And the Apollo missions returned a fair amount of moon rocks, but we want to get more samples from different parts of the moon, including the dark side of the moon. And that's the the goal. Um, and, oh, excuse me, I said dark side of the moon. I should have said far side of the moon. It does get lit up by the sun, but it's always the farthest from Earth. That's a common misconception I should clear up. But the Artemis mission is going to return at least 35 kilograms of moon rocks. And by obtaining it from multiple areas of the moon, if they look a little different, that might tell us that it formed from different moonlets that merged together. But again, nobody really knows. So we definitely want to go back. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I mean, 35 kilograms is like 77 pounds. This is a small <laughs> child worth. Yeah, it was like an eight-year-old. We're, we're going <laughs> yeah. to need an adolescent's worth of evidence to figure out what really happened. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, so hopefully we'll be able to get a lot out of that. I mean, it's a lot of rocks. So hopefully a lot of knowledge scales linearly. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we definitely want more. You can't get enough moon rocks. We spoke to Raluca Rufu a postdoc at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, for more information. Raluca was on the team who first proposed the multiple impact hypothesis for the moon. According to Raluca, additional samples from the moon will be extremely important in finally answering this question. What I heard is uh, going in the pole, South Pole, um, and there is a crater there which is called South Pole Aitken, or SPA, 
in and it's the largest basin that we know of in the solar system and it may have samples from the mantle itself so it's going to be very beneficial if they decide to land there and bring samples from there but there's another area of our neighborhood that could shed even more light on this question i guess one of the things that could really benefit the moon formation um, community is actually sample return from Venus. Because Venus, we don't have any uh, samples from Venus. It's very hard to get meteorites from Venus, so we don't have samples from there. But we know that Mars has, we believe that Mars has uh, accreted in somewhat in the exterior range of the terrestrial region. Therefore, its signatures may have been different than the interior, which is Venus and, and Earth. Therefore, if we might have samples from Venus and these samples come out to be very similar, then maybe it's not so hard to assume an isotopic similar um, impactor. And therefore, we may not even have a problem. But we don't really know how much mixing, how efficient the mixing is in these early stages. So I guess that will be the most beneficial thing that we can get. How well accepted is the multiple impact hypothesis today? According to Reluca, it's not so clear. It's kind of hard to tell because everybody has its own preferred models, especially if you published work in this field. But looking kind of objectively, which I'm trying to do, every model, every new model, and every model that we have to date has some advantages and disadvantages. But I think it was really interesting to, to see that even smaller impactors can create moons, and we know that these impacts have occurred so it was interesting to ask the question, well, what, what is the consequence on, on the Earth's angular momentum, how much they change the spin of the planet, or whether these agglomeration of these impacts can eventually create the moon itself. So it was an interesting question overall. Thanks, Raluca. And now, back to the podcast. Well, it seems like whether it was one impact or multiple impacts, the story of the moon is action-packed, right? Or I guess you might be able to say action impact. <laughs> that was a pity laugh. I'm sorry. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> that, that, was, that, that was pretty forced. Alex. Thanks. Come on. You know. Um, but <laughs> the story of the sun is a little bit less action-packed, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it. So the astrobite that I'm talking about is called very, very little star, or don't if you're the sun. It was written by Daniel Burke, based on a paper by Vitska and others in 2018. And the motivation for the research was that the sun is known to vary in brightness or energy output as received on Earth by less than about 1%. Wow, so that seems like a really tiny amount. And I know that when we're looking at extrasolar systems, if a star varies too much, then it's seen as maybe not a great host for habitable planets. Um, although I'm not exactly sure what percent that corresponds to. So 
would we expect the sun to actually brighten more if it was more like an average star or is it atypical? Yeah, good questions. I should probably give a little bit more backstory about the sun before we launch into this research. So uh, the sun has a solar cycle of 11 years. This is called the Schwabi cycle after the uh, person who discovered it. And the solar cycle basically designates a periodicity in the intensity of activity of magnetic fields within the sun. So uh, magnetic fields in the sun start bunching, they get wrapped around, and over 11 years, roughly, you get um, these things that form on the surface. Some are sunspots, which is where uh, you have regions of slightly lower temperature due to magnetic fields intersecting with the surface of the sun. And then the other feature that can form are called faculae, and those are spots of slightly higher temperature than the average surface of the sun. And so those show up as kind of bright spots. And interesting side note, the first recorded observations of both sunspots and faculae is thought to be in around 800 BC in I Ching. So this uh, book of astronomy measurements from uh, ancient China is listed as recording peck measures and small stars inside the sun. And so people think that that corresponds to uh, sunspots and faculae, um, respectively. Okay, so this is 800 BC. 800 there's BC. There's no way. There's no way people just have like nice solar telescopes at that time. So how are they actually observing these changes in the sun? Are they just like staring at the sun until they go blind? You know, I I thought about this and I thought about this, and as far as I could find online. Maybe that was the case. There was a paper that came out in 1983 that found that a fair number of sunspots that appear on the solar disk over a Schwabi cycle could be visible to the naked eye. Um, but again, that raises the question of were these people just looking with their naked eye or had they devised some more clever way to, to take these observations? And it really raises the question of reproducibility, right? Because how many times can you take a measurement like that before you go blind? Kids, don't try this. Yeah, home. that's a good point. We should probably make the note. Do not reproduce this experiment. But in the case of this research, uh, they were interested with the fact that stars with similar magnetic fields to the sun actually show much higher brightness variability. So the question is, why does the sun not show that variability? So do we know what causes that variability in other stars if we're not seeing it in the sun? So there are a lot of things that can uh, manifest itself in uh, changes in uh, brightness. In this case, the authors were looking at three different aspects of a star. The three are metallicity of the star, the viewing angle, that's the inclination between the rotational axis of the star and our sight line to it, and the effective temperature of the star. And so all three of these things could potentially change the number of sunspots and faculae that appear over a solar cycle. Alex, tell us what metallicity is exactly. Metallicity is the proportion of elements in a substance or a body um, that is an element heavier than helium on the periodic table. So hydrogen and helium are not metals. Everything else is a metal in terms of astronomy. 
As far as I'm aware, astronomy is the only field that uses this term, metallicity. That's correct, yeah. I mean, at astronomical scales, almost everything is hydrogen and helium, so everything else right. is just decimals. And you also said they were looking at effective temperature. What's, what's effective about it? <laughs> so one could argue <laughs> how effective this temperature really is, but effective temperature is a term that uh, describes the temperature of a body were it um, undergoing black body radiation. That is that uh, it absorbs all light incident on it and does not reflect or transmit light through it. So it's like an ideal system. So it's saying if the sun were an ideal black body, then this would be its temperature, which as it turns out is not a bad estimate for the uh, light curve of the sun. Interesting. Yeah, and in this research, the authors found that changing the metallicity, the viewing angle, and the effective temperature, any of those by a small amount, can actually cause drastic changes in the brightness of a star. This is pretty interesting, uh, but what's extra exciting about this, maybe, maybe fascinating and curious, is that if you plot the variability uh, in 3D space of these... Uh, three parameters, the variability of the star, they found that the sun's values for metallicity, viewing angle, and effective temperature seem to uh, fall at roughly the minimum for variability. And I I just want to make the distinction right here that this doesn't necessarily mean you have fewer sunspots or faculae on that star. In the case of the sun, you just have these sunspots, the dark spots, and the faculae, the bright spots, roughly canceling each other out over the 11-year cycle so that the brightness stays roughly constant. Hmm. And this is probably averaged over a long time span then, right? Because um, I know there have been times when the sun was um, especially inactive, like the Maunder minimum in the 1600s, where there just weren't a lot of sunspots. Although I'm not sure whether there were just a lot of faculae to balance that out. Um, but does that mean that the sun is somehow extra conducive to life in some way then if it is at this minimum and is this measured over a long time span and we know that this is a consistent pattern. Okay, so there are a lot of questions in there. So I'll try to know it's okay. I'll try and I'll try and deconstruct them one by one. The first question buzzing around my head. The first question that you had is uh, how is the variability measured or estimated in the paper? And So I believe the variability that they're simulating in these uh, stellar simulations is the mean variability across a Schwabi cycle. That's the 11-year solar cycle that we know of so well with the sun. But you also mentioned the Maunder minimum, which is super interesting because there is evidence in the case of the Maunder minimum that there's another magnetic field cycle taking place inside the sun, but that this one has a period of roughly 400 years. And so... The Maunder minimum began roughly around 1645. So if you add 400 years to that, you get 2045. So it is actually possible that we're heading into another long-term solar minimum. And so scientists are still trying to figure out what might be the consequences of that. Alex, to go back to what you said about the astrobite you Mm -hmm. read, you said everything was at a minimum, which means that we just got really lucky again, right? Or, or this is another condition for life? Did they go that far? They didn't. I think the idea was that uh, implications for life were implicit within the paper, but they didn't actually talk about the ramifications. Um, 
because there are a couple of different assumptions of the model that might change whether uh, whether life actually uh, varies according to the variability of uh, a star or not. So on the one hand, radiative transfer that was done in the paper assumed a 1D stellar atmosphere. So there are potentially 3D anisotropies that could change the calculations that they had done for variability. And in addition, finding stars that vary in brightness, turns out, is easier than finding stars that don't. So it's possible that stable stars are more common than we previously thought, and the sun isn't super, super rare or just fortuitously conducive to life. Uh, and maybe we're just biased against finding those, uh, those constant brightness stars. And then the final assumption that they discussed in the paper was that there are no, at present, 3D MHD simulations, that's magnetohydrodynamical simulations, for different metallicities in a star. So without those, it's really hard to say how magnetic fields and the corresponding sunspots and faculae might change. Okay, so MHD is definitely a big word. Well, it's three letters, but magnetohydrodynamics is a big word. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? I can. So magnetohydrodynamics, or MHD, is a framework to explain how magnetic fields affect the behavior of fluids and vice versa. So lots of substances in space can be treated as fluids, like, for example, the hot plasma within our sun. So when we want to understand how magnetic fields in the sun change based on different metallicities of the plasma, like they were trying to do in this paper, we're going to need MHD to do it accurately. I, I know MHD is a pretty big deal in, in simulations because it treats things as a fluid, and that's a, nice sim that's a nice simplification in most fields. I hope we'll cover MHD more in the future, but it also breaks down at times when you have to keep track of individual particles, and it's no longer like a fluid, and that creates some interesting situations. And that's kind of like how the modeling in the astrobite I read worked. Um, they did an n-body simulation, keeping track of every single particle and all of the moonlets separately and treating nothing like a fluid. And so that's, it's kind of interesting that, you know, the different ways simulations work, they either tend to be uh, treating everything as a particle or treating everything as a fluid. Hmm. Interesting. So in the case of say planet formation, for example, which, which assumption do you think is, is better, which is done? Assuming everything is a particle maybe? I'm going to defer to Milena on this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say definitely a disk, although maybe it depends on what phase in planet formation. So if you're early on and you're in the protoplanetary disk and you still have a lot of gas, then it's well treated as a fluid. Whereas if you've reached the point where the gas is already cleared and you just have lots of dust particles, then it's probably more appropriate to use N-body. So um, it's both? That yeah. sounds hard. Both, everything at once. It sounds too complicated <laughs> to think about. I'm glad we don't have to cover it today. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, actually, I mean, we're not actually talking about planet formation, but you're never going to escape an episode without me mentioning planets at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, of course, some of our favorite neighbors are our lovely nearby planets um, that are all very fascinating in their own respect, but... Um, today I'm actually going to be talking about Jupiter and Saturn in particular. Um, they're actually the most distant of all the objects that we've talked about so far. 
Um, and the astrobite that I'll be discussing is by Jenny Callahan. It's called Why Are Jupiter and Saturn Spinning So Slowly? So it's about a paper written by Constantine Batygin in 2018 that, as the title might um, <laughs> tell you, um, is about why the giant planets Jupiter and Saturn are spinning as slowly as they are. I thought the giant planets spin the fastest in the solar system. Is that not true? Um, so they are spinning actually quite quickly relative to the other planets in the solar system. Um, Jupiter has a spin period of 9.93 hours, and Saturn has a spin period of 10.7 hours. But the giant planets aren't really expected to form in quite the same way as the rocky planet, so it's not quite a one-to-one comparison. Um, so the giant planets form through something called runaway accretion that would cause us to expect them to spin up over time. And that isn't necessarily the case for the rocky planets. How would that work? Um, so the Jupiter-sized planets, when they form in disks, they start out by forming a core from the gravitational instability um, and a gas envelope starts to accrete onto it. And once you reach a critical mass, then you get something called runaway accretion, where the planets just keep adding on more and more gas. Um, and when that happens, because you have material falling inwards, um, kind of like an ice skater pulling in their arms, you would expect the planet to also start spinning faster and faster. So if this runaway accretion continues for too long, then the planet's outer surface is actually going to hit escape velocity and the planet's just going to break apart. So... I know that at least Jupiter exists. I know, I know that to be true. I've seen uncertain about Saturn. I've seen beautiful pictures of Jupiter. So, so if those planets didn't break apart, either runaway accretion doesn't happen for too long, or there's something to counteract that angular momentum. Uh, yeah, so this is actually what this paper is talking about. So the author goes through a semi-analytic hy- magnetohydrodynamics Magnetohydrodynamics. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, and so he explores how a strong magnetic field can spin or can slow down this planet's spin. The magnetic fields end up actually coupling to the surrounding circumplanetary disk that forms and it produces a force in the opposite direction of the planet's spin um, so that it doesn't end up just breaking apart and we end up actually having Jupiter. Hooray! So you need magnetohydrodynamics for planets as well. Yeah, so MHD probably plays a pretty important role in the early evolution of lots of different planetary systems and this is a nice piece of evidence that it was pretty important in our solar system in particular as For well. making the planets spin more slowly. Yes. So that is a particular reason. I'm not actually sure of the other reasons that we would need to consider it specifically for our solar system's formation, but there might be other things and I just avoid learning about magnetic fields. <laughs> I don't know. So, so in the case of making the planet spin more slowly, how exactly does that work? In this model, um, the author calculates the magnetic field strength from the typical luminosity you would expect from a young Jovian planet. Um, So some of these have been observed in extrasolar systems, and they've also been found to spin relatively slowly. So it seems like this is something at least somewhat universal, although I think our sample size is lower than 10, so it's still kind of small. 
So placing that planet into a circumplanetary disk model, um, they find that the Jovian protoplanet, if it has a substantial magnetic field, then it'll couple to that circumplanetary disk and create that opposite force that we were talking about earlier. And so this slows down the spin and deposits angular momentum into the surrounding protoplanetary disk environment. Um, and so it goes first into this circumplanetary disk and then gets recycled back into the circumstellar nebula. So essentially, magnetic fields can solve all of our problems, even if we hate to admit it. Yeah, I mean, maybe not problems outside of astronomy. <laughs> I, th I think there are, there are a lot of things in my life that probably aren't solved by magnetic fields, but um, in astronomy, it seems to often be a recurring theme. And in fact, that should probably be my one sentence summary, um, which is that magnetic fields are pretty complicated, but they can solve a lot of our problems if we'll just let them, including longstanding mysteries related to some of our closest neighbors like Jupiter and Saturn. Um, so Alex, what's a one sentence summary of your astrobite? In the case of the sun, Magnetic fields can cause lots of problems for us, but luckily we fall in a sweet spot of low variability. And Will, what's the one sentence takeaway from your astrobite? The moon almost certainly formed from impacts, but how many impacts may take us going back to the moon to find out? Nice. There you have it. Amazing. <laughs> so it, it seems like these are all really local questions. And I mean, we've known that all these objects have existed for centuries, if not, I don't know what you call thousands of years. I'll just say thousands of years. <laughs> <laughs> millennia. Um, millennia. Yeah, millennia. Um, so why have we not solved these problems yet? What do you think is preventing us from just, you know, totally solving the solar system? These are hard questions. We can ask easy questions about things that are far away, but we have to ask hard questions about things that are close because we already answered the easy questions. I think, <laughs> I think that the exciting thing about astrophysics and its underlying physics is that it's a process of unification. So we're trying to find laws or theories that explain more than just the thing we're looking at. So that's exciting because it can be really powerful, but that's also difficult because... Uh, we're trying to find a couple of simple ways to describe lots and lots of things that happen in the universe, not just in our local neighborhood. So studying the problems that happen around us are actually not that easy to do because solving them would mean solving other problems far, far away from us. That's a great That's point. That's a really good point. Yeah, and I, I think it's also notable that there is a lot even on earth that we really don't understand like there's so much in the oceans that we just have no idea about in the amazon rainforest and maybe it's just that the less accessible places that you can't just like easily walk up to and put a microscope to it um, are a little bit harder to explore more thoroughly i hope we don't get any pushback from any biologists watching uh, listening to this right now <laughs> <laughs> we, we value your work we need more people incredible. like you <laughs> <laughs> um, so why does our local neighborhood seem rare then or what do you think is making it different from other neighborhoods so i think astronomy like so many other stem fields is a process of refinement so we find out to zeroth order what's going on and then we find out to first order and then when that's not good enough to explain all the things we see, then we go to second order, et cetera, et cetera. And 
I think because of that, we find the dominant physical processes in a uh, system first. And we find that those dominant processes might, for example, spin uh, a planet apart. And so we need to refine on that. And so it might seem like we're kind of fine-tuning our local neighborhood in order to get the observed results that we have, but it's really fine-tuning our uh, understanding of the underlying physics. Because these are all models. We're trying to run better and better models on how things exactly. work. Right. I guess it's just that we're also looking at these topics in so much detail where we aren't able to study how moons and extrasolar systems form because we haven't actually confirmed any of them, for example. And so maybe it's just that all of these phenomena seem sort of unusual in some ways because we haven't been able to study a lot more. Although for, I guess, the sun is, we, we have been able to see a lot of other stars. Well, we've been able to see a lot of other stars and we've been able to obviously study the sun for a long time, but we still don't fully understand how magnetic fields translate to uh, faculae and sunspots. Like they said in the paper, MHD simulations don't currently exist for the sun at various uh, metallicities, effective temperatures, things like that. So even from the sun, which we have seen for millennia, we still don't fully understand what's going on inside it. I just wanted to say, I'm also really excited if that prediction about the Maunder minimum coming up really soon is actually true. Because um, the way that I learned about it was by looking at these paintings in the Netherlands. And I think in the descriptions of the paintings, where all of them were just like people on rivers with ice skates and they all just looked like it was freezing cold and they were from the 1600s and it's because everything just froze over then. And so I'm excited to see if we get a lot of new Dutch paintings that are all like frozen rivers. <laughs> <laughs> a new era. So this would maybe constitute a full other uh, Astro soundbite if we really delved into it. But uh, <laughs> the relationship between climate on Earth and the 400-year uh mode that's predicted is not a firm one. It, it's not even known whether there's a strong correlation between the little ice age that happened during that minimum in the 1600s and uh, solar activity. And so it's really interesting because there are some scientists who say we're going to have another ice age in the next hundred years. And there are some people who say that's ridiculous. And at most, the temperature uh, would have a reduction of like 0.1 degrees Celsius, which would be masked by all of the uh, global warming that is happening anyway. So I, I don't know. We'll see which uh, predictions bear out over the next hundred years. All right. Well, I guess that's a good place to wrap up. Um, so this concludes episode two of Astro Soundbites. And so if you want to learn more about the three different astrobites that we talked about today, check out the links in the show notes. And if you liked what you heard, check out all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. 